Revelation 2. So last week we looked at the church in Ephesus, and so we'll look at the second church and being in verse 8, the church in Smyrna. So here's Jesus speaking. And to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and the last who died and came to life. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not fear what you are about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Here's some strong words. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. So he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, and the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. So we're going to talk today um, about the persecuted church, and I wanted to begin and with a point of honesty, which we should always have. And the point of honesty is just simply this. I tried this week to imagine what it's like to live in a place of persecution, and it's just literally impossible to really understand that. We can kind of imagine what it's, been, what it's like. Um, our current mission partnerships international in the two nations that we have been going to are nations where Christians are persecuted, put in prison, uh, property confiscated, and even at times, uh, death comes to those who come to faith in, in those places that we've been going mission-wise. And so um, we're going to walk through this. We're going to talk um, honestly about, about what it's like to live in a persecuted place. We're going to see Jesus' perspective of that. And so there's not really a way for us um, to really fully have empathy in regard to um, what, is that, what is it really like um, to be fearful because not a one of us got up this morning or went to bed last night and had any kind of thoughts at all that there's going to be any kind of trouble for us to walk into this building today. Nobody was going to meet, check papers to find out where we were headed, what we we're going to do. Nobody was in the parking lot. Um, we're not anticipating any government officials coming in this morning and, and shutting down what we are doing today. And so, um, so we can be honest about that, that we don't really understand that. And so there's two things connected with that. One, we need to be thankful and grateful for that, um, that that's not the case. And the second thing with that is simply this, is that does not, because we, we don't face that at all, does not absolve us from being deeply concerned about our brothers and sisters on the planet today who some met in secret um, based on the current statistics Christians lost their lives today in a nation, in a city, in a neighborhood, taken from their family because of their faith in Jesus. And so these things that we're going to read about in regard to the church in Smyrna are still happening today and they will continue to happen and increase until um, man's work, evil work of his heart is done with and Jesus creates the new heaven in the new earth. And so this place called Smyrna is in the country of Turkey today in a city called Izmir. And uh, it's, it's really actually the only existing of the seven churches that Jesus speaks about in Revelation 2 and 3. It's the only actual city that still exists of the seven. Um, it's still a beautiful place. There's an inlet that comes in from the Aegean Sea. It's a port place where ships can come in, and it's still just a, it's a beautiful place. You can go home today, and you can kind of look at it. It's a, it's a remarkable place. I'd love to visit it sometime just to, uh, to be there um, where this church was and to get some more door pictures because you have to always get door pictures when you visit places. And, but uh, this is a unique place. What's interesting about Izmir is this, is that one-third of... The population of Izmir of about 300,000 people are Christians. Interesting. Strict Muslim country, Turkey, one-third in this city, 
uh, claim the name of Jesus. And it's kind of been that way throughout Smyrna and Izmir's history that there has been a consistent gospel presence in a place that has become very dark. So the letter of this is the shortest one to Izmir. I mean, to Izmir. I got to get back. Let me go back ancient. Where, uh, so Smyrna is the shortest letter. Uh, ESV has 129 words said to the church in Smyrna. A form of the word death is mentioned three times in the four verses. Just, just short verses, but uh, the word death is um, mentioned there. If you go back 2,000 years ago, one of the things that came out of Smyrna was something called myrrh. Myrrh was a shrub-like plant. They would take the leaves of this, they would crush it, and as they would crush it and mix it with water and also the things there, it would give out an aromatic um, smell that was really beautiful. Later times, and even during that time, it was used for embalming. So they, was, they would embalm people and wrap them in linen. They would put myrrh um, and pour it onto the linen strips. And so it was used um, in that process. And so um, myrrh, if you'll remember, was brought to Jesus as a baby um, in Bethlehem. And it foreshadowed when they brought that, the wise men brought that to Jesus, his death. So to get this aroma from the plant... You have to crush it. And so, so as they bring this to Jesus in Bethlehem, it's a foreshadowing of what he would go through, that he would be crushed. And from his life would pour out an aroma of life so that you and I would have the hope of knowing Christ in a relationship. So death, this idea here they were acquainted with, if you come to our culture today, because we're not, we're not fearful at all, particularly among Christians, about losing our life for our faith, but it doesn't mean that Americans are not scared of death. Death is one of those things that seems to be at the forefront of many people's lives of wanting to stay here on the planet as long as we can. And so you look around at our country today, there are industry after industry that are designed to help keep people away from death. Yesterday, during the heat of the day, I'm driving and people are outside running in the heat of Texas. Why are they running in the afternoon? Why? Because they're trying to be healthy, to stay here and to be alive. What's interesting when you think about it, about the believers in Smyrna, is death was a part of their conversation Every day. It wasn't one where they were trying to stay healthy and exercise and eat right so that they could live a long life, but their lives were in danger every day because of Jewish group. Uh, Rome was there, and we will see today that Satan was behind the persecution that was taking place to the believers that are there. So as we come to our text this morning, we're going to find a local church existing faithfully when everything around them was pending death, talk of death, fear of death. And I thought long and hard this week about this, thinking about us since we don't have any idea about that. And and I don't mean that as a criticism at all. We just don't have any idea about this. But I thought this question, what kind of place would life point be If remaining a member here and a tender here meant possible death, imprisonment, the taking of our property, the loss of jobs, how seriously would we take our church in gathering together on Sunday morning and doing life together if we had that common thing like the believers in Smyrna had with one another. And you see this all around the world today. You can read the stories of what is, God has been doing, sustaining people as they've been losing their lives as martyrs in the last 10 to 15 years through places like Open Doors and Voice of the Martyrs, kind of letting us in on what is happening and taking place with believers around the world. And so um, people are still facing this, but what's unique about them is that they don't miss gathering together. Do you know that? 
sometimes it's in secret and they have to secretly text things and hide things and do this. But you know what they do every week? They gather together. You see, there's a purity that happens in persecution. When the church is grounded in comfort and no fear of that, there's kind of a pampering of the believers. Where the believers come to believe that Christianity is grounded in comfort. But for many believers, that is not the case. They are, they are pure. They are strong. They are faithful. They don't withdraw. They don't hide. They actually gather together even in spite of the persecution. And so it is estimated this year or in 2022 that 360 million Christians on the planet live in countries where persecution is not minor, but it is significant. We know in 2022 that 5,000, about 5,600 Christians were murdered. There were 6,000 more that were detained or imprisoned. Another 4,000, particularly girls in Africa, that were connected to Christian families were kidnapped by the Muslim group of men and they were kidnapped, 4,000 of them. And then in 2022, 5,000 churches and other religious facilities were burned, destroyed by bombs or fire or whatever the case is. So these things are still real for us, for some believers around the world. And I think there's some important things here for us to see. So let's get into the text. If you would look with me in verse 8 again. So to the angel of the church in Smyrna, write the words of the first and last who died and came to life. So what I want to just emphasize first is what does a persecuted church need? What do they need to be reminded of as they're gathering under the fear of or the threat? I don't know if fear is the right word, can be, but under the threat of loss of property, loss of life, loss of job, Um, ostracized, kicked out a family. What does a church like that, what do believers like that need to be reminded of and grounded in more than anything else? And here it is. It's what Jesus says in verse 8. They need to know the gospel, stand in the gospel, and they need to know the sovereignty of the power and the glory of our God. And so the first point this morning may sound a little bit weird, but here it is. These are the words in verse 8 of the eternal God who is our substitute, dying in our place, who was raised and who is living again. He is the living one. So this church, Smyrna, faithfully believing, walking with God, meeting together under deep, heavy persecution in their city. About this time, if you go back to when Smyrna was there, it is believed somewhere around 200,000 people lived in Smyrna during this time. Uh, Originally, this was a city founded by Alexander the Great. And so the believers there are, are, have come to faith, believing, standing in the gospel. And so now they're having heavy persecution upon them. So what do they need to be reminded of? And, and what Jesus shares here is what, what, what was needed and, and what's needed in our lives is to be reminded that our God knows what it's like to walk through this life. So Jesus here, walking in the midst of the lampstands that we learned from Revelation 1, is there by Smyrna. What did Jesus himself experience at the end of his life? He was persecuted, he was threatened, he was mocked, he was spit upon, he was arrested, he was beaten, and he was killed because of his faith. So listen to what Jesus says here. To this heavy-handed church that that is under this persecution, Jesus says to them, I want you to know this, that I am the first and the last. And I'm the one who came to die. And I'm the one who lives. Nothing has changed with the plan of Jesus. 
So he sends words to this church to be reminded that they would be reminded that as they came to faith by hearing the testimony of the gospel, and now they are meeting weekly to study the word and to walk in the word and to worship him in light of the word, he now sends new words to them, reminding them that he is the eternal God. There has never been one before Jesus. He's the first. There will never be one after Jesus. He is the last. He sustains everything in between both of those things. And so here here you have believers. Then we have believers today in our generation who need to be reminded that their God went through persecution. And he's the first one. He's the glorious one, the eternal one. He is the end of all things. And two things happened to him that he speaks about his nature here. He said he died, the eternal one, the first and the last. He died and he came to life. So here's what Jesus wanted Smyrna to understand. Number one, that he is the eternal God dying as a substitute in our place. This phrase first and last is not a, just a New Testament idea. It comes from Isaiah. If you're taking notes, you can write 44.6 and 48.12. Isaiah 44.6 says, Thus says the Lord, the King of Israel, and His Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. 48.12, Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel, whom I called, I am He. I am the first and I am the last. So as we come with, we see Isaiah, we come to Revelation 2.8. Jesus is equating himself to Isaiah. Do you see that? So what is he saying? If Isaiah is affirming that first and last is God, now Jesus comes to speak to Smyrna and he says this, I am first and last. He is reminding Smyrna that the one that they love, the one that they are staying true to, is the one who is the eternal God. He is sovereign. He is their shepherd. He will sustain them. He is the first and last. He is to be preeminent in every way. And he reminds them that I died. I was like you. I was persecuted. I was mocked. Pressure was put upon me to conform. The vehicle through which Christ was led to the cross, was one of extreme hatred and deep persecution. As a matter of fact, Jesus says of himself in John chapter 15 that he was hated without real reason and real cause. We have the eternal loving God who has made people, who has called them to be in relationship with him, and mankind's heart was so evil that it hated God without any real reason and without any cause. And so Jesus reminds this persecuted church, as some of you are facing death, I want to remind you that I did as well. I died. But not only did I just die, I'm different than anything else. I came to life again. And so he's reminding them that there's something greater for believers than just death. So the People hated Jesus. They hated the Smyrnans. They persecuted both. People poured out all their hatred. The Romans did and the Jewish leaders did. And Jesus was victorious over every single bit of it. And what they needed, these persecuted believers, was to be reminded that the gospel is worth it. Can I ask you and I this question? Is the gospel worth it to us? Is the gospel worth it? To us. If there ever comes a day that we're going to be deeply challenged about our faith, is the gospel going to be worth it? And to be honest with you, you never know until it happens. Because when the crushing comes, what's true inside a believer is going to come out. And if it's cowardice, then that's what's been inside the heart of a believer. If great faith comes out in the crushing, then that great faith has already been a part of the believer. And I love the reality of what Jesus is doing to these persecuted 
believers. He's calling them to look at himself. I am the first and last, the one who speaks. And so I'm before all things. I will be after all things. And I died. I get what you're going through, persecuted church. But I want to remind you, because your faith is in me, I came to life. And guess what? I raised you to life. And ultimately, in the end resurrection, I will raise you to life as well. I also just want to point this out before we move on to the next point this morning. In every Roman city, and this was the case, you can look through um, even secular history about Smyrna, Caesar worship dominated the place. And so Christians would not go, you had to, it was, you were required by Roman law once a year, everybody was to go into a pagan temple to pay money and then declare out loud, Caesar is Lord. Well, as believers all over the Roman Empire um, came to faith, they would not do that. And it put a lot of pressure on them. And so there was a lot of different perspective on, on why they wouldn't do that. Um, and and so, so one of the things that Jesus, I think, is doing here when he says, I came to life, he is contrasting himself with the Caesars. There were multiple Caesars. Why? Because when they died, they died and they stayed dead. When Jesus died, the grave couldn't hold him. And so on the third day, he rises again, never to die. And so he's reminding these believers, you are believing in one who is the first and the last, who gets where you are. As you are facing death, I faced death and I conquered death. So the great hope for persecuted believers is not freedom from their persecution. Their greater hope is if someone takes their life, they step into the presence of Jesus. And that's where their hope and that's what he's calling them, why he's asking them, first of all, to listen to what he says and to look at him and to contemplate the nature of who he is. Empires rise and fall. Jesus outlasts them all. The Caesars were being worshipped. They lived and then they died. Jesus lived, died, lived again. And you see, a persecuted church naturally becomes a church that deeply understands the glory of the cross and the resurrection. Those two events. You, you go When we go to um, our partnerships in Asia and we talk with them about and we ask them stories about persecution and what's happening and taking place, a part of the central conversation that they always have is the cross and the resurrection. It sustains persecuted believers. It reminds them that their hope is not, does my life continue on here? It's, does my life continue on the other side? And their hope is deeply, deeply grounded in their great affection for the work of Christ on the cross and the glorious hallelujah that he rose from the grave. So Jesus reminding these believers, first of all, I'm the one who's the eternal one. I died in your place as your substitute. I did die and stay there. I was raised and I'm now the living one and I will always be the living one. Here's the second thing. Just briefly on this one. It says to the angel, verse eight, to the angel of the church in Smyrna, right? And so I want to look at the first part of verse eight. Secondly, this morning, the church is to be guided by the words of Jesus. Can we be in agreement about that? Yes. We are to be guided by the words of Jesus. So I want to remind you, Jesus has been gone, ascended to heaven for 60 earth years now as we come to Revelation chapter 2. So he ascends early 30s. This is about... AD 95 AD, when he comes and he reveals himself to John, this revelation um, that's here. So for 60 years, he's been gone, seated next to his father. Now he comes back and he's got a message. Incidentally, it's not a new message. It's about the words of Jesus for the church. And he's got a message 60 years later of earth years for the church 
to say to them, just as it began, you are to continue to be about the words that I speak. I am the word. So these are the words that I have for Ephesus, Pergamum, Smyrna, Thyatira, Philadelphia, and all seven churches that are there. So the church is to be deeply grounded in the word of God. The leadership must make a priority of the word of God to be the priority in the church. Now that doesn't mean that, I, that a, a church member's life cannot thrive and grow and move forward and be passionate about God if the pastor is not passionate about God. Your life is not dependent upon me. Now we are to mutually help and encourage one another to walk with them. But the words of Jesus are the priority. They are the ones we are to talk about, live by, embrace, be passionate about those. And so both the people and the pastor must be ones that love the word of God. And so the word angel means messenger. So as this word comes to Smyrna, it comes to the leader who's probably the primary teacher and leader of the church there. And his life is to be shaped by the words of Jesus. I cannot imagine there being a church that doesn't prioritize the teaching and the proclamation of the death and resurrection of Jesus as a great priority in the church. And can you surmise, if a church doesn't talk about the cross and the resurrection, what will result in several decades if this teaching and valuing of the word of God is not a high priority and the cross and the resurrection are never talked about. So Jesus wants the persecuted church to know, I am first, I am last, I'm sovereign over you, I got you, and I want to remind you that I died and that I rose to never die again, and you can trust me. Thirdly, look at verse 9 now. Let's look at the words of understanding from the great shepherd. There's a lot in this verse. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich. He's saying here as well, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. There's a crushing challenge that is going on in Smyrna. And so I remind you a while ago just what I talked about, that one of the main products that uh, Smyrna gave to the first century world was myrrh. It was produced there, grown there, and it was one of the big things that they exported. People would come there um, to buy it. And so this church at Smyrna was being crushed under the heavy hand of persecution. And the result uh, was this is that in their city that hated them, I love this, God always gets the last laugh about things, as they were being crushed under persecution, their lives were giving off an aroma, a fragrance of Jesus in the midst of a dark city. And it kind of seems to always be the case. When you look at persecuted peoples, in persecuted nations or sections of the world and they love God and they continue to walk with them, they give off an aroma that's just unique and different. They just make people shake their head about the faith that is connected to those that are being crushed. So these believers in Smyrna were actually a blessing to Smyrna, though their persecutors had no idea about that. Let me remind you and I of something that is written in Psalm that is connected to what's happening here. Listen to this, this is Psalm 45, 6 through 8. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and you hate wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, this is a, this is a prophetic word about Jesus, therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companion, and your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. So as Jesus was crushed and he died and and myrrh was put on his body, when it was put into the tomb, it was giving off this aroma 
that a pleasing sacrifice had been given for the sin of mankind, a fragrant scent. And Jesus lived with this oil of gladness, this idea that I came to please the Father to bring about salvation to people. Now, myrrh also means bitter, something that's bitter. And so in time, it became associated with things that were connected to suffering and death. I don't think it's a shock to any of us this morning that a place that was suffering great persecution, that it would mean bitter, and there would be a fragrance connected to it, that that's where that was happening and taking place was a place of great, deep persecution. Here's another verse, New Testament verse. 2 Corinthians 2.14. These are some of my favorite New Testament verses, through 14 through 16. But thanks be to God, who in Christ, if we are in him, Jesus is doing this. Listen to this. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always, there's this phrase, always leads us, his people, in triumphal procession. We are not a defeated people. We belong to King Jesus, who is the conquering king, the king of all kings, the Lord of all lords. He is high and lifted high, and he is always leaning about, even in persecuted places, triumphal procession. And then the text says this, Paul writes, and so now through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. 15, for we now believers are the aroma of Christ to God among those that are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, it's a fragrance of death to death. The lost are like, why do the lost... Why do they hate Jesus? Why do they hate us so much? Why is there so much backlash toward Christians now in our stance about certain things? It's because the fragrance and our passionate love gives off a smell to them that they can't stand. They don't get it. And so Paul writes about it to want a fragrance from death to death. But then when you get among believers that love God's word and they love God, Paul says this, and to the other a fragrance from life to life. And then he poses the question, who is sufficient for these things? So let me just touch on these words of understanding for a moment. I want you to think about this with me for a second. On the day that Smyrna got the entire scroll of Revelation, and they're meeting maybe in secret, candlelight, wherever they're meeting, and somebody starts reading it. They've come through what we know is chapter 1. They've read about Ephesus that's just to the south of them. So think about this. Revelation being read to them by the messenger, the angel that it's been addressed to. And as they read through chapter 1, they hear the letters especially addressed to them. Their name is mentioned in chapter 1. And so in the room is a gathering of outcasts meeting in a city that was dangerous to them. And when the reader gets to Revelation 2, they hear this phrase, and to the angel, the messenger of the church in Smyrna. And when they got to the words that we're reading here, when it was being read, I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you are rich, and the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I just wondered in that dark room, did they tear up some of them, thinking about, yeah, that's us. And my king understands what we're dealing with. He suffered. He died. And he rose. I wonder, did they hear the very words of the ones who loved them saying to them that they weren't alone and they had not been abandoned in Smyrna? The Son of God was walking in their midst. He knew the true condition of their lives. And it's a powerful thought to try and see what these words might have meant for those persecuted believers, hearing these words from Jesus written by John for the very first time. And I wonder if it probably would have been me, somebody like me and somebody like some of you might have smiled when he heard 
Jesus referred to those Jews as a synagogue of Satan. And they thought, yeah, he gets it. He knows. He's been there. He was persecuted by the Jews, his own people as well. You see, listen to this. Nothing ever escapes the sight of Jesus. If we think we're alone, we are not alone. He is always aware. So the first thing I just want to remind us of about about this for persecuted believers and this ever comes to our lives is this, is that Jesus will know. He will know the condition that we are in. Secondly, he will know that it's it's a troubled time, that that it is real deep persecution. This word tribulation that's here in the text um, if, you, if, you were, if you've ever seen it back in ancient days, they would have these gigantic stones that sometimes would be walked around by oxen and sometimes slaves would have to push them, but it would crush grain or other things so that they could get the seed and the kernel out of that. And, and that's the word that's used here. So this was not a, oh, you Christians are weird people. No, this was crushing Heavy stone of persecution upon these believers. That's the word that's used here. This church was paying the price for their committed allegiance to Jesus. And their faithfulness had become a target of great, great hatred. So the cities, Smyrna, ancient Smyrna, loved Rome. Loved the Caesars. They had multiple temples there. They actually had a, they had a place in the, in the city where there were kind of a trifecta of, of God temples, gods, some of the Roman gods, and there was a street of gold that was there. And I wondered, I wondered this week, sometimes when they walked across that street of gold, did the Christians go, oh, this is nothing. I'm going to the real street of gold one day. So this pressure was strong, crushing pressure upon them. It was so strong that they had become poor. So listen to this. If on a Sunday you believed in Jesus in Smyrna, you know it could almost pretty much guarantee that if you had a thriving business, you would not have a thriving business anymore. The indication here from Jesus and the word that's used here is that everybody connected in the church became poor. So people didn't want to do business with you anymore. And there was a poverty that was there. Smyrna was an unbelievably rich, rich city, incredibly rich city. And so under, in the underbelly of the city was these believers who had lost everything. The idea here, the word poverty here means... Extreme poverty, not just being poor, but extreme poverty. It describes people, the Greek word does, who lost everything. Family members, job, house, all kinds of things. That's the idea that's here. Y'all don't have anything to do today, right? Do y'all have anything to do this afternoon? Okay, I want you to go back left just for a second. Hebrews chapter 10. I want us to look at one thing here. It's not real far to the left. Just so that we can see this was not just in Smyrna. This was happening happening everywhere in the first century. Go to Hebrews chapter 10. And go to verse 32. But recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison. Wow, listen to these words. And you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, the writer says, don't throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. 
For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve our souls. If you would go back to chapter 2 in Revelation. So believers in the first century all over the Roman Empire were experiencing the plundering of their property. Can you imagine somebody pulled into Stonebridge this week, government people, and just unloaded everybody that lives in Stonebridge or whatever subdivision that you live in and just just took all of your property because you were a believer? That's what the Smyrna believers experienced. Again, that Greek word, the idea is destitute. This was the condition of the people there. And so Jesus reminds them of this. And this is what persecuted believers who've had their property and family members taken from them, they need to be reminded that ultimately it's not about having the riches of the earth. It's about having the riches of heaven that come from knowing Jesus. So Jesus tells them, you are actually rich. You are rich. James in his letter said the same thing, James 2.5. He said, listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? Paul writes, 2 Corinthians 8.9, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And so Jesus affirms to those that love him and love his kingdom that godly riches are always better. It's not wrong to have earthly riches, but godly riches are always better. The Smyrnans didn't have any earthly treasure anymore. It had been taken from them. And yet they were continuing to meet and to be faithful in sharing the gospel. Most likely the Jews in Smyrna hated the Christians because the Christians had led family members who were Jews to faith. And now you've got divided family and and there's this hatred that had come to the believers. The same that you see happen in Iconium and Lystra in Antioch of Pisidia, when Paul was stoned and he was arrested and, and the Jews in the synagogues there hated them. Again, this was the case. So Jesus just wants to remind them, you are rich regardless of what you don't have. If you know Jesus, you know the treasure. Do y'all remember these words? The Lord is my, sh- my shepherd. He's my shepherd. I shall not want because I know him. Because my life is in his hands. And then the text says that they were slandered. The word here in the Greek is blasphemy. So not only was there confiscation of property that made them poor, they couldn't operate their businesses anymore, difficulty in their family, they were blasphemed. Incidentally, I hope you'll agree with me, You're not a great synagogue if Jesus calls you a synagogue of Satan. Just saying. And that's exactly what he says of them here. This this synagogue that was gathering in the name of Yahweh and hating Christians was no different than the Roman citizens going into the temple and saying Caesar is Lord. Jesus calls them a synagogue of Satan. It's not any different. The Roman gods were a temple of Satan as well. So Satan is mentioned twice in this text here, once as Satan and once as the devil. So therefore, who's behind all of this persecution? Satan. Satan's behind it all in in the hatred. And so when you look at our world today, he's behind it as well. Way back in the day when they made maps several hundred years ago when they were kind of exploring and they were going out and they were putting things together. Um, They looked very different than the way that we have maps today just because we've got satellite and and we've been able to go further. But when they were initially trying to explore the world and and look at things and to go out with those things, maps were much different. 
when they got to a place where they were like, okay, we've gone as far as what we can go, they would have the map drawn and they would write in the region that they hadn't gone yet, they would write this phrase on all the maps. They would say, here be dragons. And so it was just a, a word to say, we have no idea what's out there, but probably dragons, that's a fearful place. It's an unknown place. There's there. And so all of the maps several hundred years ago would have that here be dragons. You may have heard that phrase before. As you and I think about our lives, we sometimes come to places that we have never been. And it would be easy to write in the map of our life just that phrase, here be dragons, that's a fearful place. And I want to tell you that's not biblical thinking because when we get to a place that we've never been, guess who's already there? And we need to write on the map of our life, here be Jesus, who is sovereign, who's there, and who can be trusted. So Jesus has a word to prepare them as we begin to wind this down. Look at verse 10. He says, do not fear what you were about to suffer. It's about to get worse. I've just described to you what it was like. It's about to get worse. Verse 10 is worse than what it was like. Do not fear about what you were about to suffer. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison that you may be tested. And for 10 days you will have tribulation. Listen to these strong words. Death was coming to some of them, and so he tells them, you be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. Let me talk about this just for a moment. Jesus now gives them words of preparation for the ongoing battle. I don't know about you, but some of us, some of you may be thinking, well, if you can't do business anymore and you can't do this, why in the world would you stay in Smyrna? How about just, let's just move the family And let's go to another city. Let's find out where Christians aren't being persecuted. Let's just go. You know what's amazing about the Smyrnans? Is that's not what they did. I want you to think about that for a moment. They did not flee to an unpersecuted place. They stayed. Why? I think they loved with the gospel their pagan citizens. I think they loved... These Jews that are called the synagogue of Satan, they love them enough to stay in the midst of the persecution to continue to proclaim the very gospel upon which they were being persecuted. That is such a deep faith that's unlike what I know about. To be able to, to stay in a moment like that. And Jesus knows they're staying. So he's got a word for a church that's staying in the midst of a place like that. And he tells them these words, stop being afraid. That's what the Greek, our English ESV translated this. Do not fear. The Greek actually says this, stop being afraid. Some of them were, were being afraid. And Jesus is saying, don't put your faith to flight. Stay where you are. The lack of courage and fleeing is ultimately not going to do your faith any good. But as you stay, stay connected and believing in me. Stand up to the trial, he tells them. Don't give in. Don't run away. Don't turn away. Make sure that you don't let Satan get the victory and convince you to walk away from the place that I've called you. You keep your eyes on me and you keep looking at me. As your model. You remember Stephen as the rocks are hitting him? He looks up into heaven and he gets a vision of heaven. And in every, every place in the Old Testament and the New Testament, we get this image of Jesus seated at the right hand of his father. Do you know what, do you know what Stephen sees Jesus doing? He's not sitting. You know what he's doing? He's standing. It's almost as if Jesus was moved in heaven about somebody that loved him that much as the stones are hitting him. That he's saying out loud as the stones are hitting him, Stephen, saying, forgive them. They don't know what they are doing. So these Smyrna believers get this word from Jesus. Don't fear. Don't put your faith to flight. Secondly, he tells them, listen, you're going to be tested deeper than you've already been tested. There's a new persecution coming. And you're going to have to endure it. And it will reveal the genuineness 
of your heart. He says it'll be 10 days. There's a lot of, you read book after book on Revelation. Was it 10 days? Did it represent? There were, there were 10 Roman emperors that persecuted the first, second, and third century churches. Um, part, in, part into the fourth century. And so some people believe it's that. Some people believe um, it was just literally 10 days that this was coming. It was going to be 10 days. It was going to be intense persecution. Some believe it was uh, 10 years. Uh, Domitian was the emperor on the throne. As John wrote this, he persecuted Christians for 10 years. Have your pick. It doesn't matter. It's deep persecution and hatred of the gospel and hatred of God's people. And I, I love this about Jesus here, and I love this what he does in our lives. He never sugarcoats anything. He just tells it like it is. And he doesn't sugarcoat any of the difficult days that are going to come for them. And so he tells them this. Listen, you're going to have to be faithful unto death. You're going to become faithful even unto death. It's possible that maybe nobody else has died yet in Smyrna. We don't really know that or not. But the word is clear that some of them are going to be faithful all the way up to death. One other thing before you... Oh, goodness. I never have enough time. Oh, I do have enough time. Maybe pray for my time management or maybe pray that I don't write so much. I just, I love studying and I study and I write and I write. Let me know. Let me just let me let me say this and, and a couple of things, and then we'll we'll wind it down. Uh, as we get focused on a lot of different things in our world today, um, I'm not a big conspiracy theorist, um, but sometimes I wonder about stuff. That there's not distractions that are put out there so that we don't know other things that are being decided upon in the world today. And I just sometimes wonder that. It just seems to be too consistent about stuff. So this past week, and I don't know, you know, I don't know if what we're talking about in Smyrna here is ever going to come to us in our lifetime or to our children or to our grandchildren. Um, I don't know uh, if that's the case or not. I do know the kind of persecution that's coming, though. And I think you would agree with me. So the UN met this week in New, in New York. And then there was another meeting uh, in Geneva uh, connected to a, a long, long study that they had done in regard to um, kind of what we have been seeing in and around us in the month of June with all the pride stuff and all the things of that nature. So let me read to you. This is the kind of persecution that I think eventually is going to um, be here where you and I live. So the, 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 the crux of this is that the UN is attempting to oppose LGBT and all the other alphabet letters on all religions, regardless of nation, regardless of religion, whatever the case may be. So the article just talks about this. Religious freedom ends where LGBT rights begin. This is the conclusion of a new UN report on the right of freedom of religion and belief. The report calls on governments to threaten and punish religious leaders and organizations that do not comply with LGBT orthodoxy. They are calling on government to stabilize religions in their country from within by finding... Take, take the liberal arm of the Methodists or the Presbyterians who, um, who are ordaining homosexuals and allowing them to, and allowing trans people to preach from platforms on Sunday morning. They're going to encourage um, finding groups like that um, and, then, and then going to places of mainline denominations and trying to find people there that within those denominations and churches to try to influence the changing of the thinking um, about this, and you may say um, that's not ever going to come here. Well, do you? Know, I don't know if you know this. They're arresting pastors in England today for speaking out on Sunday mornings about this issue. This has happened in the past year, and and they're 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 pushing this in a very strong way. 
And so basically what they're trying to do is they're just trying to say this, that we are going to aim at trying to control religion in most of the nations, uh, that if they have strong theological reasons to stand against this and to preach against this, that they're going to try to crush um, the churches and the pastors and the preachers in regard to this. That's just one area. And I think that there are more, and I think that that's possibly what we're going to see in, uh, maybe in the future in regard to persecution here. But, but I, just, I just want to remind you and I that we're, though we have not seen it, doesn't mean that it's not coming. And that there aren't things that we need to be aware of and to be prepared for. And so this was taken, the study was talked about at the UN. It was taken to this uh, place in Geneva where they're going to talk about it. And they're going to try and figure out how do they implement this and try to put the pressure on nations uh, to put pressure on their religious leaders in the nation to change what, they're, what they say and what they talk about. So if it comes, I think I know us, we're going to stand true. Um, we have farmer John Newellen in our church. We have a church property here. We can grow crops here. We can take care of our church. We can, whatever the case may be, I've always I've been thinking. I've already said something to John. John, we've got farmland here. This used to all be farmland. So whatever the case is, it doesn't matter. What do God's people do? They live like Smyrns. You maintain your faith. It doesn't. It doesn't matter what form it comes. What, what kind of pressure it comes. And I asked myself this question yesterday, if I, have, if, if, I, if I have no persecuting pressure upon my faith, why do I fear at times? just told myself how ridiculous that is, that, that I would have fear um, about that, and I shouldn't. I should have great faith, and you and I should, you, you should with me as well. So Jesus tells them, words of blessing to the persevering, be faithful unto death. And if you will, I will give you the crown of life. This word crown, is, if you've ever seen it before, it was back in the old Olympians, they would put it on the heads. It was made out of foliage. Sometimes it was made out of brass and gold. And they would put it on a victor. And Jesus is saying this, those persecuted believers who live faithfully to me and are faithful unto death... When they step into my presence, I'm going to give them the crown of life. Now, this doesn't mean necessarily that everybody gets a crown and we're going to be wearing it around in heaven. Maybe we know in later in Revelation that they take their crowns and they throw them before the throne. I think the idea here, maybe it's a literal crown, but I think the idea here is we're going to get there and we're going to, we're going to clearly know that when it was here, it was never about us. It was always about him. We will be in his presence recognizing it is all about you and we will cast everything, including ourselves, before our king. Our ultimate prize as Christ followers is life. We will be crowned with life. That is what we get. And so Jesus has words for the conquering Christian. And the words of the conquering Christian are this. Continue to listen to what the Spirit has to say to the church. So that's what Jesus says in verse 11. He says, he who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We will conquer because our God has conquered. And we will get the crown of life. So we set our ear and we fix our ear on the reality of listening what the Spirit has to say. And this is where we see what the Spirit has to say. We continue to read the words of Jesus. And we have the hope, Jesus says to these persecuted believers who were going to be faithful unto death until they didn't breathe anymore in Smyrna. And he said this, that's going to happen to you, but I want you to know this, that the one who conquers and you will be a conqueror, you're not going to be hurt by the second death, that 
that there will be a final judgment. And because you are mine, you will not be cast away from me. You will enter into heaven with me. It's a dangerous thing for me to go through my notes, but just hang on. So let me stop here. About 70 years after John wrote Revelation, there was a guy named Polycarp who knew John, who was the bishop of Smyrna. The church was still around in Asia Minor. It was deeply more devoted, by the way, to Roman worship. Polycarp spoke out against all of this. They got tired of hearing what he had to say about Roman worship and Caesar and all of this stuff. So they make a decision. We're going to do something about him. We're going to arrest him. We're going to get rid of Polycarp. So when Polycarp heard about this, he was not in the least upset, but was happy to stay in the city of Smyrna. But eventually he was persuaded by some of them to leave. And so he went to friends in a nearby place just outside where, as usual, he spent the whole time, day and night, in prayer for all the people and for the churches throughout the world. Three days before he was arrested, while he was praying, he had a vision on his pillow under his head, with his head in flames. He prophetically said to those who were with him, I'm going to be burnt alive. Those who were looking for him kept coming and pursuing him, So he left for another house and they immediately followed him. And when they could not find him there, they seized two young men that were followers of Polycarp and they tortured them into confession. The sheriff brought Polycarp to a stadium so that he might fulfill his special role to get rid of this believer. But Polycarp was okay with it because he was going to get to share in the sufferings of Christ. So the police and the horsemen came with the young man at supper time on a Friday with their usual weapons as if coming against a robber. And that evening they found him lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, but he refused, saying, God, God's will be done. And when he heard they had come, he went down and spoke with them. And they were amazed at his age and his steadfastness. And some of them said, why did we go to so much trouble to capture a man like this? They were just unimpressed with him. Immediately he called for food and drink for those who'd come to arrest him and asked for an hour to pray, interrupted. They allowed him to do so, so they listened to him pray for an hour. So full of grace of God that he couldn't stop for two hours, it actually turned into longer. The men were astounded and many of them regretted to arrest such a godly and venerable old man. But when he had finished praying, they put him on a donkey and they took him into the city. As Polycarp was being taken in the arena, a voice came to him from heaven. Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. And when the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. And on hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him, they tried to persuade him to apostatize, to turn away from his faith saying, have respect for your old age, swear by the fortune of Caesar, repent, and say, down with the atheists. Christians were called atheists in the first and second centuries because they wouldn't worship all the gods and and Jesus wasn't affirmed as God and so they called them atheists. Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked heathen multitude in the stadium and gesturing toward them. He said to them, no, down with the atheists. And the proconsul said, Reproach Christ and I will set you free. And Polycarp said, Eighty-six years I have served him and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and my savior? The proconsul said, I have wild animals here. I will throw you to them if you do not repent. Polycarp said, Call them. It is unthinkable for me to repent from what is good to turn to what is evil. I will be glad though to be changed from evil to righteousness. If you despise the animals, I will have you burned. 
You threaten me with fire which burns for an hour and then is distinguished, but you know nothing of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. What are you waiting for? Bring it on. It was all time. The crowd collected wood. Bundles of sticks from the shops and public baths were gathered. The Jews, as usual, were keen to help. When the pile was ready, Polycarp took off his outer clothes, undid his belt, and tried to take off his sandals, something he was not used to do, as the faithful always raced to do it for him, each wanting to be the one to help him and serve him. They were about to nail him to a stake in the midst of the fire, and he said, no, leave me as I am. I will stand here, and Jesus will give me the strength to endure the fire. He will enable me not to struggle. So they simply bound his hands, and behind him, like a distinguished ram, he looked that way, chosen for a great flock of sacrifice, ready before an unacceptable burnt offering to God. He looked up to heaven and said, O Lord God Almighty, the Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, by whom we have received the knowledge of you, the God of angels, powers, and every creature, and all the righteous who live before you, I give you thanks that you count me worthy to be numbered among your martyrs, sharing the cup of Christ and the resurrection to eternal life, both of soul and body, through the immortality of the Holy Spirit. May I be received this day as an acceptable sacrifice, as you, the true God, have predestined, revealed to me, and now fulfilled. I praise you for all these things. I bless you and glorify you, along with the everlasting Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, to you with him through the Holy Ghost, be glory both now and forever. Amen. And they lit the fire. The eyewitnesses say that this happened, that the fire flamed and he's in the middle tied and it made an arch above him and didn't burn his body. And he continued to be there. Uh, the proconsul, the story goes, were angry about this. They wanted to burn him to death. And so they realized we're not going to be able to burn him to death. So they took a long spear and they stabbed him and he bled to death. And that's how Polycarp died. So I'm just speculating, and, and I'm not speculating about Scripture, just speculating about fruit. It's interesting to me that in a strict Muslim culture, country of Turkey, that the one city that still has one-third of its citizens, believers, is the place where persecution was heavy and a place where Polycarp was there. The saying's been there that it's the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And I think sometimes we we feel sorry for our persecuted believers. And I think sometimes uh, if you have ever read about um, persecuted believers in the 20th and 21st century, they tell we American comfort Christians, uh, don't pray that, that God takes us out of persecution. Just pray that God uses us in the midst of persecution. We're the kind who's praying that persecution never comes. And I pose this last thought. Could, could it be that what the American church actually needs is refining through persecution? And that people would quit playing the game and that our faith would actually mean something because it would cost something. So Jesus had a word 60 years later to a persecuted group of people who had lost everything and were about to go through death. Great lessons, great things for us to contemplate. Let's pray.